and welcome to Keep the Bastards Honest, the podcast of the Australian Democrats. I'm your host, Alana Mitchell, and on this episode, we're looking at the job summit, tax cuts, and other matters of interest. Firstly, my apologies for the erratic release schedule that our regular listeners are being subjected to at the moment. If you're a new listener, welcome. Wonderful to have you on board. One of the pitfalls of producing a podcast in my spare time as a volunteer is that sometimes events, dear boy, events get in the way and I end up with no spare time. I'm hoping that the schedule settles down over the next few weeks as there's a lot going on that we want to have a chat to you about. So stay tuned. Speaking of events, at the beginning of September, my co-host Steve Beatty and I got together to discuss the job summit, how the Albanese government was tracking after its first few months in office, the stage three tax cuts, and the odd coincidence that the Governor-General got his charity funded around the same time that Scott Morrison was signed into his secret ministries. And all of this is, in some ways, even more relevant today than it was back when we recorded it, although the Governor-General's charity has rightly had its funding terminated since recording. Steve and I pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the lands upon which we recorded this episode and their elders past and present. Sovereignty never ceded. Right, so goodness, I hope everyone's had a toilet break and a cup of tea and they've settled in for the long haul because this is going to be epic. So well, very quickly, I don't want to give Scott Morrison any more airtime than he absolutely has to have, but the secret ministries thing is continuing to unfold, as you would have said, and Karen Middleton is on fire on this subject in the Saturday paper, as we predicted. And then the Governor-General is getting increasing scrutiny on his uh, charity that he, again, I'm not suggesting for a second that the Governor-General has done anything, anything hinting of corruption. But it just seems really, really convenient that uh, at the same time that he's swearing Scott Morrison into secret ministries, Morrison is arranging to give him seed funding for this charity, so that $18 million up front. And then we found out during the week that it then gets $4 million a year funding in perpetuity, which is a bit mind-boggling. It's a little unusual. Let's put it that mm. way. It's a little unusual that anybody gets signed up to government funding forever. The ABC doesn't get funding forever. The CSIRO doesn't get funding forever. They both have to come back and put their hand out. But the Governor-General's elite leadership program for what appears to be a finishing school for private schoolboys gets funding for forever. Like it, doesn't, it, it just doesn't make sense. And when you put those two things together, even if they're not connected, when you... When two things occur close together, one has to ask some questions. The way in which Morrison was appointed to administer those ministries was highly irregular. The way in which this funding instrument has been drafted is highly irregular. I don't know what else to say about it. It's It stinks. If we had a yeah. federal ICAC, I'd refer it. I'd want someone yeah. to look at it. I want some Hell questions yeah. asked, you know, like, yep. because it just doesn't feel kosher at all. No. And Ronnie Salt, who's, who's you know, citizen journalist mm. par excellence on Twitter, mm -hmm. has been stressing, I think, for some days now that there is an enormous difference between the office of the Governor-General and David Hurley, the man. 
mm-hmm. and everyone from Prime Minister Albanese down seems to be getting those two things mixed up because there does seem to be this reluctance on the part of the government to look sideways at, at the Governor-General over this. And yet it feels like somebody should be. Yeah. So I saw today, I'm not, I'm not sure if you saw it, but on Twitter today I saw Monique Ryan, sorry, mm. do, sorry Dr Monique Ryan, had mm. moved a disallowance. MP for Kuyong. Yes. Yes. What about our beautiful community, our community-backed independence, has moved mm-hmm. a disallowance motion in the House of Reps to prevent this funding from going ahead because Ronnie Salt was saying there's something like, and I can't remember at what time she was saying this, but she said that there's basically only six days left before this will just mm. go ahead and be and be funded. And so Parliament has to do something about it basically this week beginning the 5th of September on whether or not they're going to allow it to go ahead or whether they're going to nip it in the bud. And I believe Tammy Tyrrell from the Jammy, Jammy <laughs> sorry, sorry, Jackie, Jackie Lambie Network has also moved a similar motion in the Senate and I'm not sure. I think you were saying that Andrew Wilkie is backing Dr. Ryan's motion. Correct, yes. Not sure who's backing Tammy Tyrrell's. It might even be Jackie Lambie or it might be David Pocock. That could be a walk of shame. But, yeah, it's really, really interesting that the crossbench are all over this and basically not having it. So, you know, yeah. democracy seems to be working to, to, to an extent. To an extent, yeah, yeah, which is nice. It makes for a yeah. nice change. No breath of fresh air. Yeah. Good. Um, uh, hopefully, hopefully yeah. they go through. It would be it would be good to see that funding stop. It's it's probably not the the most egregious misuse of public funds that we saw over the last nine years, mm-hmm. but it's certainly not a good one. It's not great, and and particularly at a time when everyone's carrying on about how we can't afford a lot of stuff because yeah, huh? apparently uh-huh. the budget and in, and sure people can go well you know 18 million dollars and then 4 million dollars annually in perpetuity it's not that you know not that not that much money but ask anybody on job seeker how much that 4 million dollars a year would do for all the people on job seeker and i think they would have very different um, thoughts on it so it's all proportionate it's all if we can't afford to raise job seeker to a livable level and lift people out of poverty, then the Governor General can do without his finishing school for privileged white boys. I think so. I think so. And mm. there's there are a lot of groups out there who struggle to get funding, who struggle to get funding that they can rely upon for more than 12 months at a time, who are trying desperately to help a lot of people who really need it, you know, all of those sorts of things. And yet here we are throwing money at a group of people who don't really need extra funding in in questionable circumstances. Yeah. Considering the number of NGOs, I mean, I can think of all of the domestic violence shelters that have had their funding not just cut but in, case, you know, in some cases terminated yeah. over the last decade. There's any number of charities and, you know, as you said, groups that, could desperately do with with that funding. I mean, hell, even like going back to sports frauds, even all those small community groups and clubs that got cheated out of of funding for their facilities. Yep, that's money that they could be directed to them. Yeah, indeed. And at a as you say, at a time when we're having a an, an argument over what we can afford and the tough decisions that we have to make in order to undertake some budget repair and. 
you know, having inherited a trillion dollars of Liberal Party debt. I think that's trademark Tim Chalmers. But having inherited uh, a, this sort of government debt, Labor is very, very keen to point out that some tough decisions have to be made, and we'll come to that in in just a moment. I know mm-hmm. it just seems an odd one, and it just seems I'm 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 really glad that someone has put forward a motion to put a stop to it. I really am. Yes, and the um and it was something that just I just remembered because it's it's only Monday. It's Monday as we record this, and already it, it has been a week. The um, there there will be an investigation. I think it's an judicial inquiry into Morrison and his many many ministries, uh, which I think is an excellent move. Even though, actually, look, I'm going to have another kick at the media because you know it, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Mm-hmm. This this narrative that emerged over the media in the media over the last couple of weeks of oh, well, we're all bored with this now. Can we just move on from Scott Morrison and his ministries? And he didn't use the powers. Surely it's okay. And mm. I have really enjoyed seasoned press gallery journalists like Paul Bongiorno, seasoned political operators like John mm-hmm. Hewson, mm. pushing back on it and going, no, 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 no. This is incredibly serious and incredibly dangerous to our democracy and we need to do something about these loopholes yeah. that enabled him to yeah. do this and this isn't going away and yeah. Albanese is not fixated on Morrison by, you know, launching an inquiry into what the fuck he was up to. It's it's a serious issue and let's not forget that the argument that, well, I only used it that one time, which in, in Morrison's view proves that it wasn't really such a big deal, the one time he used it was to misuse those powers. Mm. I mean, the only time that he used it was... Uh, essentially to get around the decision that he didn't like the the legally appointed minister of the crown taking the fact that he didn't do it any other time probably just suggests that he liked those decisions or was able to bully his way into getting what he wanted rather than having to play his trump card like the one time he did it was to abuse it it wasn't to use it like in emergency funding for the pandemic because Simon Birmingham or Matthias Corman or Greg Hunt were unavailable due to some catastrophic event. Mm. It was because Keith Pitt wasn't doing what he was told. Like, yeah. Far out. Like that's not that's not the argument that you think it is. Sorry, Scott. <laughs> yes. That's a really good point. And the Solicitor General made it really, really clear that, yeah, that was- the the yeah. use or not use of those powers was ultimately irrelevant. It was the it was the grasping of those powers that was the problem, not whether or not well, he used them. And, and, and then keeping them in secret. That it, it undermines one of the core principles of our uh, democracy, that we actually know who's making the decisions and that we be able to hold them to account. And if we don't know who's making the decisions, it's a little difficult holding somebody to account. So, yeah, kind of legal within the broad constitutional clause that you, um, you know, section 64 of the the constitution, sure, you skated within it and trampled over a whole bunch of long-held conventions about how our democracy is meant to work in the process. Yeah, and I think it was, I think it might have been John Hewson or or Paul Bondreno. I can't remember. This will teach me not to do my research before we record. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of them pointed out that, Stephen Donoghue, who is a Solicitor General, is sort of like the blackest of black letter lawyers. Like this guy yeah. literally does constitutional yeah. law 
in his day job. Yeah. And so for him to come back and say, you know, this undermined representative democracy, and he said it several times in his findings, they're like, no, 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 that is literally like DEFCON 4 levels of this, we have a problem coming from Stephen O'Donoghue. That is not a, it's not something to be skated over lightly. He was literally raising a very loud alarm over, you know, this assault on on democracy that occurred. And major media outlets, and look, the Murdoch papers aside, we know that they're going to do that, but even morning news and, and like morning sort of like breakfast TV, we're just running with this narrative of, oh, there's nothing to see here. Isn't this all just very, very boring? It's, it's I despair about our, our media representation sometimes. I really do. I find it funny, not funny, ha-ha, um, <laughs> funny, that we had inquiry after inquiry into the pink bat scheme and what a what an awful tragedy that was and mm. misuse of government whatever's for a long period of time similarly we dragged julia gillard's union pass through the press and through parliament trying to get to the end you know get to the bottom of of her union involvement no real surprise it's like right there on a cv but anyway and yet this which is quite an egregious breach of our Westminster conventions that underpin Australian democracy. It's like, wow, what are you beating up on the guy for? You know, like it's been, it's been two days already. Aren't we ready to move on? It's like, no, not, not, not really, because there are still some pretty fundamental questions that remain unanswered. Like they, they are. So let's, let's get answers to them. And backed up by, our Solicitor General, who, who really was quite clear on the fact that this is just not okay and there are some gaps that we need to plug in the way our democracy operates. Yeah, so stay tuned because, I, I uh, like I said in our last podcast, I feel like even though it's sort of it's quietened down, it's, it's, um, it's been overshadowed by other events in, in, uh, that have been taking place, which we will get to, I do feel like this, there, there is a, um, there's a sting in the tail on this one. This is going to come back to haunt um, I think not just there Morrison. No but also way. Dun- there is no way that we're at the end of this particular <laughs> area. This one's going to keep coming back. We, I, I, I can't believe for a moment that that was the first time that he did it. Mm. I can't believe that it was only those five. I reckon there are others, and I and I and I can't believe that people who said, "Oh, I'm shocked, shocked," I tell you that gambling is going on in this establishment don't <laughs> know full well that it was it was happening. You know, like it's there's there's a lot more to come on this one, and even though what we've already seen is pretty bad, I I can't for the life of me believe that that's the end of it. And if it was the end of it, if I was the Liberal Party, I'd be saying, "Go for your life, have an inquiry, waste your time," because there really is nothing to see here, and everyone will see that you're just trying to play this for all it's worth when there's really nothing more there. But yeah, but knock yourself out. You know, waste taxpayer money, waste media attention. You know, like go for it. There's really nothing here, so what? What do we care? And it's mm. it's Morrison who, like, none of us are, are really going to support or protect anyway. So we mm. we don't care. Instead, there's been this vociferous support and this, you know, like really, really uh, vigorous argument that we should all move on and not look any further, which makes me think, what the hell are you still hiding? What are you hiding? <laughs> what are you really show me what's in your hands. Yeah. <laughs> Show me what's in your hands. Because <laughs> um, on the New Politics podcast on Saturday, 
the boys were making a, a I think I can't remember if it was Eddie or Dave, but uh, but one of them was was saying how nervous and sort of anxious Dutton is looking, and speculated that Dutton's you know like Dutton might be staring down the uh, the, the barrel to the end of his own career just, because of just, this Scott Morrison stuff. Does Dutton though ever not look a little shifty? Yeah, and there, there was good playing the man, not the ball. I've, I've seen photos of him when he, when like he was much, much younger and and still in the Queensland Police Force and stuff. And even then, in uniform, he looked shifty. Mm. So he, he clearly, you know, that that's yeah. just clearly his vibe, which is in, unfortunate in, for him. In, in fairness, he's not the first, maybe not the last. You know, I, apparently he in those photos he was a a, a thug and a and a union member. So you know, like. <laughs> I'd, I'd expect him to look a little shifty in in those photos. Oh, indeed, yes. The irony of of, of Dutton jumping up and down on the sidelines about the Jobs and Skills Summit being oh. the being like a union summit and and uh, you know a a talk fest of the union thugs, and then yes. we discovered that uh, he was a strong supporter of the police union and and had joined them from the moment he joined the police force. Of course, um, you do. Yeah, you know why? Because they protect you. <laughs> Protect you when you do something, don't you? Unions are a good thing. Unions are a good thing. Unions are a good thing. Yes. Unions are a good thing. Anyway, yes. Anyway, Um, so yes, enough of all of that. Let's finish kicking the media and then the Liberal Party because, look, I'll admit that doesn't get old. So I think we've finally finally reached – I think not so much that the honeymoon is over for the Albanese government because news poll uh, this week has indicated that it very much is not over because the Liberals – Two-party preferred mm. vote has dropped to the lower, like to thirty-one percent, which is the lowest it's ever been. I think they had hit this low in the past, but it's sort of like joint joint lowest. And now, okay, uh, wait until next week. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, and obviously, you know, um, Albanese's Albanese's preferred prime minister is just killing it at the moment. I think he's on sixty plus sixty plus sixty percent, and Peter Dutton is Mister Seventeen percent. But I feel like for us as a minor party who, you know, whose who's raison d'etre is accountability and transparency and integrity, I think the honeymoon for us has also has, has actually ended. There's been a because, few things. There's been, there's been yeah. a few things. It's been 100 days and 100 mm. days is apparently plenty of time to do a whole bunch of stuff and it's what has been done in some parts and what hasn't been done in other parts that has kind of been disappointing, I think. Yes, yeah, and and look, this is not to to diminish any of the genuine achievements that they've 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 managed in sure. their first hundred days. I mean, yes. they've managed more in a hundred days than I think the coalition managed in the entire decade that they were in power. So there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah, but there are things thingies in emerging that have me going, oh, really, really, come mm. on. Yes. So, so what are what are those things? Well, number one for me at the Pick moment Pick is, is, yeah. is is. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that is really pissing me off at the moment is the stage three tax cuts and the, the way that they're – it's not just the fact that they are continuing to dig down and defend leaving them legislated. It's the, the ever-shifting stories we're getting about why they can't repeal those tax cuts. I was just going to say, and let's be really, really clear, dear listener, they can repeal them. Yes, yes. So line number one is that they can't do anything about it. You know, oh, this is yeah. a decision of a former government, and it's it's you know it's done. And I was like, well, yeah, yeah, it was a decision of a former government, which you opposed at the time, until as Catherine Murphy has immortalised, you bitched and folded, and you yeah. waved those tax cuts through. 
And in their defence, they waived them through in order to allow the stage one and stage two tax cuts that would benefit low and middle income earners. But in order to get those benefits, they had to waive the stage three ones through. And now that they're in power and now that they have the power to repeal those tax cuts, apparently no, can't be done. And look, I like Jim Chalmers. I think he's, you know, yeah. I think he's he's proving to be a good pair of hands on the treasury on, on, on the, you know, on on the um the checkbook of Treasury. Sure. Yeah. But this sort uh, of insinuation in one of his discussions with somebody was that, well, you know, we tried to oppose them a few years ago and we had to pass them through because otherwise we would have been crucified. It's like, no, no, dude, you, you do not get to pass the blame onto the electorate. The law books are full of the decisions made by previous governments. Mm. You change them every day. Yeah. You repeal bits, you amend bits, you add completely new bits. It's your whole business. It's the yeah. entire reason you get out of bed in the morning. It's not to sit there and go, oh, yeah, but I... That, that went through from an old government, so we, we just can't touch it. I no. Could, it's literally your job to, to go yeah. and touch those things. Go touch and, them. Please. Yeah. And, and the other thing that – and I've, I've been doing a slow burn on this all week, as you can probably tell. Mm-hmm. The, the, so the, the next phase was, oh, they're just sitting back and they're waiting until enough oh, public outcry has emerged. The four-dimensional chess argument. Yeah, oh, keep going. Keep yeah. going. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so the, the, the whole idea that they're waiting for sufficient public outrage to emerge over this to give them cover to then repeal because it's like, oh, no, no, we, we're going to break this election promise because the public wants us to. It's all good. And it's like, well, number one, you shouldn't have made that fucking promise in the first place. Good point. Right? And yep. I get why, like I, I get, you know, they made it during the election campaign. They were asked specifically about it. And the media has a lot to be responsible mm-hmm. for in this endless game of ruling shit in and taking stuff off the table and ruling oh, stuff yeah. out. Yeah, 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 yeah. The media does not serve us well when no. they look to box in our leaders in yeah. order to then set up a, a gotcha moment trap further down yeah. the track. Yeah. Because the, the fact that, the ta- that those tax cuts should never been legislated in the first place is probably an, a uh, topic sure. for another podcast, but... The fact that the world is really, really different now from 2019 when those tax, tax, tax cuts were legislated. Yeah. I mean, they were legislated at a time when we never imagined we'd be in the middle of a pandemic. We never imagined that Russia would invade Ukraine and we'd have inflation, a global inflation out of control or anything like that. Mm. The world has changed markedly and those not fit for purpose tax cuts at the time that they were legislated are really not fit for purpose now. And there is no way that any government, whether it be Labor or Liberal or Democrats or the Greens or, you know, the Independents, if they ever managed to form government, because we'd have to change our constitution to do that, there is no government of any stripe can, have, can justify keeping those tax cuts. You know what else has changed since 2019? The government. You've got a whole new government. That's what elections are for. We've got a whole it's new government. Wild. Who knew? We can change stuff. Things yeah. can be changed. Things can be changed, including a tax cut that was baked in 
years ago. It really doesn't and, make sense. And, and, and what's, what's odd is that in the meantime, so whilst defending those tax cuts, and I think, you know, like over the, over the legislative period, it's a 10-year time frame, they're worth $243 billion. At the same time that we're saying, we can't touch those, they've got to go through, we're also sitting there going, nothing else can be afforded. Yeah. We can't afford anything else. Sorry. Yeah. Like just absolutely nothing. Everything else can't afford. This can't touch. Sorry, hands are tied. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Sorry. You know. And that's the thing that's absolutely having me see red. And a number of political cartoonists that I follow on Twitter also, like John Kadelka has been on fire yeah. about this. And uh, Fiona Katsukas, she she did one <laughs> she did one cartoon on the tax cuts, and then the next day was was sort of pitching for ideas uh, or you know, idea suggestions on Twitter, and then just went, no, nah, actually, I'm still too pissed off about the tax cuts, so I'm I did the tax cuts again. <laughs> I'm going to do it again. Yeah, and good on you, Fiona. Why not? If it's still stuck in your teeth, then keep going at it. It is it is an odd thing for a Labor government to so stridently defend tax cuts that will, I think about two-thirds of the money will go to income earners above $200,000 a year or above $180,000 a year. Of that, two-thirds goes to men. The tax cuts don't kick in till $45,000 a year, which is where the changes start to come in. But for the next three tax brackets, it's about twenty nine. $30 billion worth of tax cut goes to the next three each mm-hmm. and then $120 billion goes to that last upper uh, income bracket. But Bloody hell. In every one of those tax brackets, we happen to have picked the part of the population at which men start to outnumber women and it continues all the way through. And by the time you're in that top tax bracket, it really is two-thirds male. I, it's, mm. it's a big difference. So whilst we can do that, can't do any of this other stuff. It just doesn't yeah. add up. No, we, we can't raise like job seeker or the single parenting payment, which overwhelmingly affects women because we're too busy giving $243 billion in tax cuts to men. So here's the absurdity on well, like another one of these absurdities, but like some of the, the, the real sort of disappointment that I'm feeling with the Labor government. Jim Chalmers was quoted in the Australian Financial Review on Thursday last week saying that it just wasn't feasible to bring forward the uh, childcare initiative. It's going to mm-hmm. kick in in July. On July 1, people are advocating that it be brought forward and, you know, kick in on January 1. You know, new year, new start of the school year, let's get this happening. And Jim Chalmers is there going, yeah, look, sorry, really just can't afford it, despite the massive economic multiplier that we know will come from doing it. It's an investment. It's going to pay off. Yeah. It's going to pay off in spades. It's going to pay off yeah. in multiples that you describe as massive um, gains, and yet, like, you won't do it, won't, won't, because this is absolutely a choice we can absolutely do it, won't do that must do this other thing instead. Richard Dennis from the Australian Institute. Hi, Richard. <laughs> has pointed out a number if of times. If you're listening. If you're mm-hmm. listening, yes. As, yeah, Richard has pointed out a number of times yeah. over the last few years that for every dollar you invest in childcare, 
mm-hmm. and child care, you know, childcare services, mm-hmm. you get $2 back. So it's not even a case of bringing all that forward and making that investment literally will pay for itself twice over. But yeah. I don't know, we can't afford it, Steve. Some sensible people have tried to put a little bit of lipstick on this particular pig by going, well, if you bring it forward to January 1, where are you going to find the workers to do the child caring, you know, to, to do the early childhood education, which is what this actually is. This is not mm-hmm. yeah, babysitting. Yeah. Yeah, this yeah. is the start of children's education. Yeah. And that is a valid point. Fair and enough. my response to that is, do you know how you solve that, kids? You fucking pay them properly. Because there are thousands upon thousands of former childcare workers mm. who are highly educated who are required to be highly educated in order to provide early childhood education to people who have left the sector in droves because of the shit conditions and the shit wages. They literally get more money working at Bunnings or operating the drive-through at McDonald's than they do looking after the next generation of taxpayers. So it's it's solvable. Like, you know, you double their, like you bring, you you pay them properly yes and give them an incentive to return to the sector you'll be able to staff it pretty quickly you know Sorry, yeah yes. and this is, like, this is but this is where groups like um parenthood and and thrive before five or thrive by five are, are mm. really pushing is to to get the sector back up and running in in a way that I don't know. I'm I'm a little cynical, and I feel like the privatization of childcare, like through the early part of the 2000s, may mm. have something to do with this. But that's let's save that conversation for another time. But there's the the workers are there pay them. That means that kids are being looked after. That frees up parents to be productive. And as we say, it's a two for one return. That's fantastic. Mm. Yeah. Like that's that should be a no-brainer. Let's just go and do it. Instead, we can't afford it. Yeah, allegedly. But we, we but we can afford Again, to give tax cuts to high high income earning men. <sighs> so that's that's never not going to piss me off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Someone has and, and, to look out for us. I mean, Scott Morrison epitomised the type of members of the Liberal Party who, if they if they could get away with it would literally hunt poor people for sport. I've said this in the past. He made childcare free. Granted it was for a short period and granted it was the first thing he he cut off when, you know, we got vaccines and it looked as though we're going to, you know, start emerging from the pandemic. But for a few glorious months. Yeah, for a few glorious months we had free child, universal free childcare in this country and Mm -hmm. the country did not collapse. Our economy didn't collapse. And we had a tiny glimpse of the of the brilliant future we could have had, like the the brilliant kind of services we could deliver to people in this country. Speaking of speaking of a brief glimpse of of what this country could be like during that same period, we raised the job key, uh, the job seeker rate up to the poverty line. Brief period there during the pandemic, the job seeker rate, the unemployment benefit, was increased. I think to about $90 a day, somewhere in that kind of range. But it, it was brought up to a level that was essentially the poverty line. The stories that came through during that period of people who survived on JobSeeker were around no longer having to choose between food, medicine and their rent, but mm-hmm. actually being able to feed their kids every day, buy medicines that they all needed for their chronic illnesses 
and to not be worried about rent. Like those are pretty standard things and pretty fundamental things that we should just be able to do in a country like Australia. But for a little bit of time, we did it. And then we dropped it again and plunged all those people back into poverty. Something else we could do with $243 billion instead, and I, and I don't want to make light of the fact that living in poverty is awful. Mm. Living in poverty is awful. It's not good on any level whatsoever. We're going to talk about the job summit shortly, but living on, living in poverty really is uh, an, an unpleasant existence. People don't do it by choice, and the idea that we are willingly consigning hundreds of thousands of Australians to live in poverty is awful. It's just mm. awful. And that's the thing, like it's not their choice, but it is the government's choice. It is to consign the them to poverty, uh, to poverty. Yeah. and indirectly, it is the choice of the electorate because we continue to allow governments to do this to people. Yeah, and look, and, and again, just sort of something else that galls me, and I know, like this gets up your nose uh, as well, Elena. That that today the Labor government was talking up the fact that there was the largest index in indexation increase in the various welfare benefits or welfare payments in the history or in 30 years or whatever whatever the, the time period happened to be. But they were crowing about it. You know, like, mm. look at our largesse. Yeah, um, look, look how kind our, we are to all look, these look poor people. Look how kind we are. Look, look at what we're doing. And the fact of the matter is, it was just following CPI. In real terms, it represented an increase of exactly $0 by definition. Mm. And it happened whether they did anything about it or not. Like it's literally yeah. in the legislation that it happens twice a year. Yeah, it's literally automated. Like this would have happened under any government. You know, yes. If Scott Morrison had been returned in May, this would have happened under his watch. He had no choice in the matter. Someone from the Labor Party stood out there today and said, yeah, but we didn't stop it. Oh, my God. What? Okay. We didn't stop it was the, the Sorry. argument. We didn't stop do, it. Do, do they want to be congratulated for that? Apparently, yeah. They they do I, actually want to pat a pat on the back. It, the increase, by the way, in case you're wondering, you know, whether or not our job seeker recipients are about to run out and buy Cuban cigars was $1.84. That was the increase. Oh. It was $1.84. Just peanuts. Just yeah. peanuts. It's not, yeah. It, it, what's really disturbing me and, and has been very disappointing to me with, you know, sort of this this ending of my honeymoon with the Albanese government, mm. and which is not to say that I'm not happy that they're in government. I mean, they are definitely yeah. much better than, than the government they replaced. But that's not a high bar to clear. And they seem very, very determined to just scrape over the top of that bar and not saw the way a lot of us would have liked them to. What's really shitting me to tears is the way they trot out, trot out talking points that like, would not be remiss coming out of the mouths of Morrison or Frydenberg or they're Angus exactly Taylor. exactly the same in a lot of cases. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly the same. Like, like the whole, well, we didn't stop the, this automated increase. Literally, like that is literally a liberal talking point because, again, coming back the to the hunting thing that I people would expect from Angus Taylor. Yeah. yeah. You're literally supposed to be the Labor Party, the party of workers, the party of the vulnerable. You're supposed to be the left of politics, the progressive side of politics that 
actually gives a shit about people mm. and you're coming out with that shit. It's not, oh. it's not great. Um, no. And, look, uh, you know, we also saw um, last week the opening up or uh, the grounding of uh, petroleum exploration licences to 47,000 square kilometres of Australian coastline to explore for new oil and gas. Mm. It's like, and, and again, the talking points there were essentially exactly the same thing that we heard from Angus Taylor and from Keith Pitt and from Scott Morrison and yeah, Matt Canavan. Matt, Matt Can- so, so much was the decision in line with the former government that Matt Canavan came out in praise of it. Oh, dear God. Madeline King got kudos from Matt Canavan. And you oh. like you've got to question your decision making when that's yeah. that's uh, who it appeals to. Yeah, and also there are arguments that this is somehow going to help power prices, like, like domestic power prices. It's just right complete now. nonsense. It's just Total complete nonsense. nonsense. It's yeah, just, it, it is complete nonsense. We 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 could talk for hours about the degree to which that is nonsense, but trust me on this one, it's complete nonsense, listeners. Mm. There is absolutely no way that petroleum exploration that begins next year is going to have any impact on what's happening with gas prices. Because what's happening with gas prices is just straight up profiteering because mm. they can, because mm. that's the way the market was set up in Australia. It's not because we lack gas supplies in Australia. We've got heaps of it. Most of it mm. gets sent overseas at vast profits that we see nothing of. Mm. More of it in a few years' time isn't going to change that. It's just no. not. No. So I follow Rachel Withers on Twitter, who's a... As should you all. Yes, and I was going to say, like, if people, if you're not following Rachel, if you're on Twitter, you're not following Rachel, you need to start following her because she writes the, it wasn't the brief, it was, was called the briefing, it's now the, the politics, politics, which is the monthly's daily column summarising what's happened in today's politics, oddly enough. Mm. And what I have found immensely entertaining and gratifying over the last couple of weeks is watching Rachel tweeting about whatever shitfuckery is going on in politics today. And getting seriously pissed off about stuff and then reading her column in which she writes about it far more eloquently and beautifully than I ever could and absolutely nails whatever the issue of the day is. So I get, um, I get the feeling that, you know, Rachel sits here from about 2 p.m. onwards maybe and for the next couple of hours just treats, tweets out this stream of, you know, like this is the shit that's bothering me and then sends a link of her Twitter feed to her editor and says, just... Just tidy that up. Tidy this up. Chuck a few hyperlinks into it to to, to cite my sources, you know. Please, I'm off to record the podcast. Goodbye. That's right. Uh, In a nutshell, so yes. Um, so much as I have kicked the media so far in this pod, there are some shining examples of how, some. how journalism should be yes. happening in this country and we need more of it. Mm. So shout out to Rachel on that one. Yes. So stage three tax cuts just and, – and this is what – and, and Rachel has actually presciently pointed this out several times now that this whole question of – the stage three tax cuts, how that $243 billion could be redirected elsewhere in the economy and to what benefit is going to haunt this government until they either give in and repeal those tax cuts or those tax cuts go into effect. And the longer this government carries on about all the shit they can't afford to do, they're going to get asked about. I think she's spot on. 
Yeah, she is. <laughs> and it's, as you said before, it's a really strange hill for a party of the worker to choose yeah. to die on yeah. is tax cuts for rich bastards. Yep. And I am not willing to trust yet, and uh, there are any number of people who would suggest to me that I just need to be patient and trust. And, mm. you know, like Laura Tingle is one of the people who think that this is just a waiting game until the Labor Party gets enough cover from public outcry that they can go, you know, like, sorry, what, what are we going to do? I, I, I just don't see that that's a safe way to go about it. Like, I'm, I'm not going to sit back and feel comfortable and go, yeah, you're right. Like, I, I, I think the Labor Party have this under control because I'm not seeing it elsewhere. No. You know, and, and I come back to the climate thing, you know, like we're told that we should trust them on the 43%, that it's a flaw, that they're going to push harder than that, that they're going to do everything that they can to make sure that the 43% goes, that goes bigger than that. But there's no ratchet mechanism to actually push that ambition in the legislation. So what's yeah. going to make it happen? And then at the same time, they're doing things like opening up new oil and gas fields for exploration. Like that's yeah. not... That's not the move of someone who's serious about reducing our carbon emissions. No. That's the move of someone who is continuing to push the interests of oil, gas, and coal interests. Yeah. Like that's not, I, I, that doesn't give me confidence that over here, when it comes to the tax cuts in, I don't know, October or next. Um, next budget or whenever it might be that they get around to it, that they're mm. finally going to say, yeah, look, we've listened and, boy, you know, like really tough decision and we don't like going back on our promises but we're, we're going to repeal these tax cuts. I mean, that's that's nonsense. Yeah. And apart from the fact that the longer they leave it, like the, the longer they sit and refuse to raise JobSeeker and, and the other social security payments because I refuse to call them welfare, the the longer those people are going to suffer and they have already suffered for quite long enough under the previous government, right? Every, like this, this, every, this is not a Democrat. Every day is unnecessary. You know? Yeah. Like this is not a Democrat who have time to waste on this issue. No, yeah. it, is, it is literally causing people irreparable harm to their physical health, to their mental health, to their emotional health. It leaves scars that last a lifetime. And every day that we choose to leave those people in a state of poverty is shameful. Yeah. And it was Danielle Wood in her uh, keynote address to the mm. Job Summit talked about even being out of work for three months impacts people's future prospects, yeah. well, can, can impact people's future prospects for years afterwards. Yes. Right? And and so so for every day we leave people on yeah, you know, below sticking. poverty, it yeah, it's it's unacceptable on so many levels. I I, I know we I know we're gonna get to it. And <laughs> that 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 talk by Daniel Wood was given at the Jobs and Skills Summit, you know, and and one of the groups that we were tr that we, we were meant to be talking about the Jobs and Skills Summit was people who want to work but are unable due to issues of access or flexibility, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a whole range of people in the workforce who would like to work, but because of issues of health, mental health, physical disability, cognitive disability, their ability to work and participate in the workforce is limited 
and not as reliable as it is for you know others right so there's this sort of spectrum of capability that means like someone who's struggling with mental health can't keep a nine to five five day a week job where every day they get up and they go in and they perform tasks and then they come home again you know like their 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 health just isn't up to it they need to be able to wake up assess how they're doing go or not go get paid for the days that they can but they need the financial backing that says on the days that they're not working they're going to be taken care of still right yes and and at the moment we've got this system where pretty much if you're on a disability pension, which some of them are, or you're on job seeker, which which many of them are and, and shouldn't be, as soon as you begin working any hours, you immediately get taken off your, your benefits. And it's 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 one of the issues that needs to be addressed because we've got this group that are being kept out of the workforce because the access isn't there and the, the equity is not there, the flexibility is not there. And yet we're not only vilifying them in the media, we're punishing them with this sort of destitution level um, social benefit. And, you know, having hundreds of thousands of people living below the poverty line because as a society we choose that and as a society we have chosen to punish them for, we, we put them below the poverty line as an incentive to stop being poor. It is such, it's, it's not just take the moral and ethical thing out of it it is, it's economically stupid because it is such a waste of the greatest capital that a nation has, which is its people. Mm-hmm. And if, if you've not been in poverty, it's, it's difficult to understand exactly how damaging and limiting being poor is, how instead of being able to be creative and innovative and to, you know, to dream big and, and to be productive all of that energy and creativity and productivity goes into trying to survive on a day-to-day basis, right? So you and I are reasonably well-paid people. In fact, we'd probably argue that we're both incredibly well-paid people. Very and that fine. frees us up. You know, we have a level of comfort and a level of privilege that frees us up to bring our best selves to work and work hard, be productive, mm-hmm. innovate, add value to not just our employers but to society, to our lives, all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. All those things. Yep. And there are literally hundreds of thousands of people in this country who do not have that privilege and can't do that because all of those eff- you know all of their efforts have to go into the daily dilemma of do I eat or do I pay the rent? Or do I buy the medicines I need for my chronic illness or do I eat? And kids need more clothing. Do they have a school excursion that I need to try and scrape the few dollars together for or whatever it might be? Mm. But that it's, it's a constant weight. And I, I I really can't stress enough how, how bad it is. Like it, it, it's, Mm. it's not something that I would wish on anyone. And it really is something that we, we, we need to see solved. And then on top of all of that, we pay private companies billions upon billions of dollars to police and oversee this literal industry of poor people. Like we have literally turned poor people into a commodity that these private companies sell back to the government for billions of dollars in profit. Yeah, it's like a $9 billion a year industry. And and it's – 
again, um, Rick Morton did a piece in the in the Saturday paper, I think two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago now, and he, and he took a good look at the employment services industry in Australia, and I use all of those words with, with care. And, you know, like essentially the whole program of training, mutual obligations, the, the works is a revolving door of profiteering. Is, is the bottom line when you sort of read through that investigation and analysis. It's appalling. Yeah. And, it's, and it's profiteering on taxpayer dollars. Like all of these companies have contracts with the government to provide these services. Like they're I not. Think, yeah, I think one of the no? things that the, the coalition government did over the last nine years that they were most effective at, and it is a short list, but they were very, very effective at this one thing, is finding ways for private companies to benefit from previously government services. So, you know, like we we take a, a public service and we dismantle it and we privatize it and we pay for it with taxpayer funding. So yeah. we, we're, you and I are still paying for it. But instead of funding a public sector with public sector workers looking after the community, we instead fund a private company whose first, you know, responsibility is to their shareholders. And then and the profit the, motive. And, and and the profit motive drives pretty much everything else. And then the product in that sense is essentially unemployed people. Yeah. And for nine billion dollars a year, we could dismantle that whole thing get rid of mutual obligations, get rid of this impetus, Yeah. all these hoops that people have to jump through in order to prove they are worthy of the pittance of money that we give them. We yeah. could raise the job seeker to a livable wage. And if, even if even if all those people currently working in those employment and, and, and training organisations were themselves rendered unemployed by us cancelling all these contracts, we still would have money left over from that $9 billion a year. You yeah, know? mutual uh, for the avoidance of doubt, mutual obligations is something that should go. They're punitive and they're performative. Uh, I think it's been shown time and time again that they don't actually help anybody get into work. Mm. They make it harder in some cases. The new system, which is a point-based system, if you're a full-time student, you don't earn enough points to meet your mutual obligation threshold. So you're doing full-time training to learn something and that doesn't give you enough points to meet your mutual obligation. If you spend yeah. all of your time, 40 hours a week, going to job interviews, that does not give you enough points to meet your mutual obligations. Like It doesn't actually make a great deal of sense, but it's not intended to, except from the point of view of ensuring that we've got this group of people who are forever on this revolving door of employment service, training service, back to employment service, where the training service is actually owned and operated by the employment company and, and around they go. Yeah. And again, not every course that you can be a full-time student in actually qualifies to give you points at all. So you could be training to fill one of the many skill gaps we have in this country mm-hmm. that in theory should set you up to be a productive and hopefully well-paid member of society. Yeah. And in the short term, you will get zero points for that effort and you would have to find, you have to cobble together the 100 points a month that you're required to do outside of that. It's not It's not a good system, to, to put it bluntly. It's not a good system. It's... It's certainly not 
delivering on its purpose, at, at least its stated purpose, which is helping people find employment. It's not a good replacement for the old Commonwealth Employment Service. It feels regressive, it feels punitive, and it's certainly performative, and it's expensive, and it's not really doing anybody good except for those people who own and operate those employment services, it would seem. Yeah, it it feels like sort of performative cruelty, and the cruelty is the point. Yeah. Because, again, it's designed to make sure that people like you and I are fucking terrified of becoming unemployed. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. And it's, and I think probably more the target for this particular program are the casual workers in places like universities who are yeah. being placed on these sort of short-term rolling contracts. They need to reapply for their jobs year in year, the casual teachers who are never given permanent teaching roles, people who work in casual hours in hospitality and that kind of stuff just over there is this group of people who serve as a warning to you that things could be worse, so maybe don't arc up too much. Have we mentioned that you should join your union? Because if we haven't, (laughs) you should join your union. Yes, you really, really, really should. Uh, And you're right, yeah, it's the precariat who are being sent a warning that, you know, you think you think you've got it bad now in the gig economy? Try being, you know, try being unemployed. Yeah. And I, I, and I it, it bothers me when on the other lever, if you like, or the other the, the other warning sign is skilled migrant workers. Mm. This is the other sort of key lever to keep workers in their place, it feels. And this was touched on during the, the Jobs and Skills Summit. It was pretty much always going to be one of the things that was brought up and, and changed, but they've increased the, the threshold or the number of skilled migrant workers or visas that will be given out each year. They've made it easier for students, international students who are studying in Australia to stay on and work for longer periods of time, you know, this kind of stuff. But that's another group. Happy to be here. I, I, I won't make too much trouble because I'm, mm. I'm glad I don't have to go back home to my other country. I, I much prefer to be in Australia and this is a path to permanent residency one, one day down the line. It's essentially, again, being used as a lever to just stop Australian workers getting too uppity and asking for too much. As a result, it it really shouldn't come as a surprise to people that our wages are suppressed, even though corporate profits are rising astronomically. Corporate profits are rising currently, and this data only came out today, three and a half times faster than wages over the last 12 months. Greg Jericho had an amazing graph on Twitter today showing the – I think the the end like the profit data came out and he graphed yes. it, yeah. and he had one line going going up and up and up and up, which is profits, and then another yep. line that was just stumbling along along the bottom, which was wages, which and is the wages. gap between the two. Yeah, you know, like the the rate of growth of profits is, and I think for this quarter alone, it was seven point six percent seasonally adjusted for profit, for business profit, and it was 3.3% for wages, which was a great result for wages, but in in historical terms, but we also went backwards 2.8% because CPI went through the roof, but corporate profits outperformed CPI. Mm. And again, as uh, the Australia Institute and Richard Dennis did some analysis earlier, well, late last month in August, corporate profit is one of the key drivers of price rises at the moment. It's not wages. Mm. It's not other costs. It's profits. 
So if we're worried about inflation and we're sort of thinking that something needs to be reined in in the economy, it's not wages that are the issue, it's profits. Yeah. So listeners, price rises is, a, is another term for inflation. So the inflation that we're currently experiencing is driven in not not just because of global shortages of things because of the war in Ukraine but also driven in large part by price by profits and companies choosing to raise their prices because they can under the cover of the war in Ukraine and covid and everything else. Now's a great time. Now's yeah. a great time if you're a business to sit there and go, "Ah, oh, look, you know, just ah, oh, global supply chain war, pandemic there's drought in Europe. I, I've just got to raise my prices. I have mm. to. Sorry, mm. kids to feed. What what yeah. what you going to do? And then bank a massive profit and pretend that it's that the two aren't connected. Yeah, you know the unfortunate reality we're in is that the Reserve Bank and you know governments of all stripes are harkening back to the seventies, the last time we had a massive inflation outbreak. And freaking out and going, oh, we must crush spending. We must crush demand in order to then crush inflation. It's like, but it's not driven by demand. Like there, there is like there is no such like the wages are not breaking out at the moment. There is not a demand on wages. Rain in the greed. Yeah, there's yeah. a job for you. Rain in the yeah. greed, and then Windfall we'll be okay. profits tax people. Something. Look, uh, and and while we record this, the Reserve Bank meets tomorrow. You know, in. At 2.30 p.m. tomorrow afternoon, they'll release their decision on what to do with the cash rate. They're almost certain to increase it. It's almost certain to be the wrong thing to do. Mm. <laughs> Again, it's not really going to help inflation in the way that they want to, but it's the only thing that they've got that they can do because the government won't do the thing that it should do. Yeah, if, if uh, you're about to cop an increase in your mortgage again, and let's keep in mind that interest rates are now 200 points higher than they were before, was it before the election? I can't remember. Pretty close, yeah. It's, it's, this is all designed to crush your demand on things and I've, I suspect that a lot of people feel that their demand has been pretty much crushed but inflation is still rising because corporate profits yeah. The the thing is though, Elena, if that's if that's your concern, if you're concerned that demand is high and what you need to do is rein in demand, you know what's a terrible idea? Tax cuts. Tax cuts too much people. <laughs> tax cuts are a bad idea. Tax cuts <laughs> are a bad idea. So tax bad. cuts are a bad idea. You know what else is a bad idea? Spending even more money on an industry that is already experiencing severe shortage. Construction, for example, shortage of staff, shortage of materials, shortage of equipment. There's some amazing stories going around the industry at the moment around the shenanigans to secure cranes on building sites, the heavy equipment that are needed to move, uh, you know, sections of freeway or sections of railway or whatever it might be to form all of that heavy machinery is limited and, mm. and we can't get more into this country because shipping supply uh, chains are an issue. But as a result, the cost of hiring a crane per day keeps going up and up. So the cost of construction per day goes up and up. Wages and the cost of all of the materials is going up and up. And what did we do in the May budget? 
we threw an extra $10 billion into infrastructure spending. The same week, the New South Wales government was going, actually, we're going to put a whole bunch of infrastructure on hold because these costs are, are just stupid. Yeah. We, we, we just, we're just fueling a fire at the moment and there's, there's no point. Like this sector at least is doing really, really well. Let's spend our money somewhere else. One of the and- places that you might spend that money, just and again, like this is just an idea, Okay. Yeah. Early childhood education, those two things, do them. Yeah. Because, I mean, infrastructure is a brilliant spend for governments to make when they need to pump, you know, pump prime a, a stalling economy because it, you know, it, it pushes demand into the economy. Yeah. But demand, like when demand is already through the roof, infrastructure spending is a terrible idea. And as you said, it needs to go into things like services. It needs to go into things that will unblock productivity and resources and spend it on a productive asset if you need to spend it on something yeah why not and you know that makes sense you need to yeah like if you need to invest invest in raising people's wages in aged care and 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 child care and hospitals education education education, good investment you know yeah look coming back to the jobs the jobs and skills summit for a minute like some of the stuff that came out of that around things like TAFE places and investing in like the government, part of the government announcement was an extra billion dollars in this sort of short-term funding around TAFE, additional fee-free TAFE places, something like 465,000 additional TAFE places, costs are going to be shared with the state governments, you know, like that's a great idea. Excellent. Mm. Good good Mm. idea for those people who need to retrain, for those people who need skills in order to get work or, or stay in work, that's great. Might want to tie that to the just transition or to the energy transition. So we skill up our coal, oil and gas workers and get them into a new career. Maybe that mm. might be an idea. That kind of investment, go for it. Yeah. But I, we, we're just not thinking through the sort of flow-on impacts of some of the stuff that we're spending money on. No. And employers really need to let go of this notion that they can get away with not raising wages. All these people screaming about how they oh, just can't find staff. It's like, well, I don't know, maybe if you fucking paid them properly, people would be willing to work for you. Yeah. I saw a, um, uh, mm. an article about Dan Murphy's literally offering a job interview to literally anybody who wants one because they cannot find people to work for them. Yep. In lockstep with that is a suggestion from a, a retail association that we maybe allow 13-year-olds to work. And it's like, hang on, you guys are so determined not to pay people properly that you're now right. advocating for child labour. Yes, or pensions, like yeah. the elderly. Let's yeah. let's recruit the elderly, let's recruit kids. Yeah. But for God's sake, like, let's not consider that we actually increase wages to a point where people are willing to do this job. Like that's it's, it's absolutely there are, like there so. are some industries out there that I know are really struggling and they find it hard to pay higher wages. I get that. And you know, I take the time to speak to any number of uh, cafe owners when I go and get a coffee and, and chat to them, my local butcher and greengrocer and those sorts of people. I always uh, chat and see how they're doing. Most of them are working solo. Most of them are unable mm. to provide um they can't pro- they they can't predict when the when the busy days will be and when they need the support and yeah. it's not worth it for them 
like they can't afford to have people on staff who aren't needed and mm. equally people who are only being offered, you know, two days a week, three days a week, a, a couple of shifts here or there when I need you, can't can't do that because they need reliability. They need, mm. you know, they need to be able to be confident that they can pay the rent, that they can, you know, like buy food and all of those sorts of things. So they're looking for jobs that are more stable. That cuts out an awful lot of jobs in the central business districts around the country. Mm. Most of those retail outlets, those cafes, restaurants, that kind of thing, you'll read story after story after story of those smaller businesses who are really struggling to adapt with the rents that they're paying on some of these spaces versus just the variability and the unpredictability of their customer base. You know, what days people are coming into the city, what days people might spend money and therefore when they might pay staff. So there, there is absolutely groups out there where that that idea of like pay them a higher wage just doesn't flow through and that's fine, but there's an awful lot that you just sort of sit there. Uh, I saw a, a, a suggestion from a farming group recently that they be able to pay people in fruit. Oh, yes. <laughs> and thankfully that got ripped to pieces as it, as it so deserved to be done because it's yeah. like – Really? You want to reintroduce the feudal system? Pretty much. Because that's going to help productivity. What you're looking for are serfs. Yes. <laughs> Literally, what you're yeah. talking about is a serf. And uh, to, to speak to the, the, the French and Russian monarchies about how, you know, how pissing off the time. serfs worked out for them. Yeah. But like, literally that was the suggestion. So, you know, the idea of getting... 13-year-olds back into the workforce, maybe they could get a forklift license. I know that idea's been floated <laughs> in the past. I go, yeah, I, there just seems to be in the same week and, and, and in the same period that we're talking about record profits for business and where we're talking about a record share of national income going to shareholders and going to business profit, it's, it, it just doesn't stack up to be sitting there saying, now is not the time to raise wages. Mm. And as, as you said, it's not all businesses are having record profits and that's, yeah, you know. Hashtag not all businesses. <laughs> I feel like something that, that, that we as a nation have sort of in some ways have become sort of economically illiterate about mm. and that is productivity and what productivity mm-hmm. actually means. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to – I'll put I'll put a link to this in the show notes because the Crikey published Danielle Wood's keynote speech in full mm. and it is really worth a read mm. because she's got graphs galore in this. It is – it's amazing. But she talks about productivity and how productivity has fallen globally over the last decade, mm-hmm. but it's fallen further in Australia. So while, yes, the whole world is, is having a bit of a productivity slump, Australia is having a bigger one which indicates that Australia is not, like it's not doing everything it can to keep, like we are literally falling behind the rest of the world. And one of the things that productivity do is like productivity is not just doing more with with fewer people, it's capital investment. It's Mm -hmm. rather than hiring more people to do manual tasks, you automate, you invest in machinery and equipment and things. And it also means that, the the movement of people from industry to industry. So an industry that is not being productive, that let's call a coal mining, just for as an example, that is facing external pressures that mean that its, its markets are shrinking and all this sort of thing. 
people in that industry will naturally shift to other industries over time mm-hmm. and businesses and sometimes entire industries will just collapse and 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 that is normal economic activity because in pure economic terms ideally a productive economy has our resources whether it be money whether it be equipment whether it be people whether it be a mix of all three going to where we are producing the most for the least cost we're not doing that in australia at the moment and so for some of those poor small businesses who are who can't afford to hire people and give them stability in in, in their hours and stability mm-hmm. in the moments when I'm going to need you to come in and help me out, over the next five, ten years, there probably will be a reckoning and some of those businesses may not survive. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the harsh reality. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that economically we're failing. It means that... The people that those businesses would otherwise either employ or have employed will go to other businesses and other industries where they can be more productive. And even those business owners who sadly have lost you know, lost their business, it frees them up to go do something productive. They might start a new business that has a better business model and, and, and has a chance of being more successful than their old business. Or they might return to being an employee and add value elsewhere. But we need to sort of encourage, we need, yeah. first of all, we need to start being more productive, but we yeah. also need to start encouraging that and, and not seeing it as this terrible tragedy when certain industries or certain businesses, certain sectors suffer loss of productivity because there's usually a reason for it. Yeah, there's, there's always a degree of turnover in, in our businesses. You know, mm. Australia has two point something billion businesses. A lot of them are small. In any given year, I think about 500,000 startup and 500,000 plus or minus uh, clothes, right? And mm. and I, th- I think about half of all businesses that are started don't last 12 months and, and the number is closer to 90% by the time you get to five years. So there's a there's a certain degree of, of activity as businesses start and, and, and people try things and they close again. What we're seeing though is a stifling of that activity. And instead of money being invested and reinvested, it's being consolidated and hoarded uh, in, in essence. And it's it sort of reached the point, I think, in that cycle of capitalism where the wealth has become concentrated so much that it's having a noticeable drag on the productivity of the economy. Mm. Like that's that's sort of where it feels like we're we're at, or or we're very very close. U.S. corporations are, are sitting on a few trillion dollars worth of cash, and and they're basically sitting on it, and it's money that should otherwise like be back out being reinvested in in new ideas, being invested mm. in R and D, being invested in, and and those companies are sitting there going, yeah, but we're making plenty of money, so we don't have to. Mm. Um, but that is, in fact, the drag on the economy, you know, where we're not getting that reinvestment, where we're not getting the training, where we're not getting the, the cross-pollination of ideas, where we're not getting that sort of creative churn that can happen. And and let me just say, I, I don't want to dismiss the disruption that a business closing causes to the people involved. But it just mm. sort of thinking of it at that macroeconomic level, we're not doing a good job in Australia 
of encouraging people to try things. We don't have the social safety nets in place that allow people to take those sorts of risks, um, yes. you know, like, and, and that's a part of it. So when we talk about things like a universal basic income, one of the things that that encourages, because it provides people with the means to survive, is it encourages creative pursuits in business and, and production of, of new value. It encourages creative pursuits in the arts and, and culture, it, in the performing arts. You know, like it encourages people to go and volunteer and, and help in their community. I could, that's, that's the kind of productivity that we're talking about. It's not just about, you know, like you working a little bit harder or hitting the keys a little bit faster or, you know, like it's that's that sort of, you know, hamster wheel type stuff. That's not what yeah. we need. Yeah, no, you're right. And and in in her speech, Danielle Wood was saying how Australia, we are really behind Europe and America in terms of things uh like our take up of AI and other mm, technologies. Yeah. And it's those kinds of things that can then help that productivity. Because as you said, our corporations mm. are sitting back and going, well, you know, we've successfully suppressed wages and we're sitting on, you know, record profits. We don't mm. need to invest in capital and machinery and people. We, we're operating we're, we're operating an effective monopoly. So what yeah. does it what does it matter? And where they yeah. are doing it, they're doing it to further suppress wages and further yeah. sort of cut their workforce rather than increase their productivity to grow and, and produce more things. And that's like the other the other problem is that those new investments are simply putting people out of work, not generating wealth that's shared. And, you know, the one area in which we have massive productivity is in these corporations lobbying governments to get a better, better deal on shit <laughs> rather than. So, yeah. So, yeah, it's a must read, people. You really should read this speech. It's, it's, yeah. it's slightly terrifying. I think it was September 1. She was the second speech at the Jobs and Skills Summit or maybe the third, but very early in the day and really seemed to set a, a, an interesting tone to proceedings. Yeah. And coming back to the issue of immigration, mm. people are quite rightly going, well, that's great that you want to up in increase the immigration caps. Where are these people going to live? Yeah. How yeah. are they going to live petrol? How are they? And that, that is a valid question. Mm -hmm. Bernard Keane was, was writing in Crikey and saying that government and business both see immigration as this brilliant stopgap measure to to plug skill sets and all mm -hmm. this sort of, you know, still skill gaps and, and that sort of stuff. But studies have shown that while immigration can come in and it can plug critical skills gaps and all this sort of thing, it also creates additional demand in the economy. And so the productivity benefits and economic benefits that business and government argue we get through immigration often don't materialize because they consume as much as they as sorry immigration consumes as much as it produces i shouldn't say they because it's not the fault of immigrants so that's one of the uh i think uh, double edged swords of the, this you know this idea at the job summit that i think was in some ways probably agreed to a little bit too readily there does need to be a focus on training and education and Utilising the human resources that we have available to us here and now, which comes back to our discussion about job seeker and and as you said, like universal basic income and giving people the freedom to experiment, maybe fail, maybe nail it next time. Yeah, that's right. 
Uh, one, one thing I will say about the immigration question, a lot of the people that we're talking about are already in the country. In order to apply for the relevant visa, they have to already be here. So they, they are already consuming resources. They do already have somewhere to stay or, mm. or not. So they're, they're, they're already creating that kind of burden on the system. What, That's a really what, good point. what would change is that they can become contributors to the productive side of the economy, right? So, and, and we get the benefit mm. of their skills and experience and expertise and cultural diversity and all of those sorts of good things that we, that we would like to see. So, like, there's, there's that, and that's, that's a good argument. I think that the, the, the other side of the immigration argument though and we talked before about it being a a, almost a a warning to our precariat workforce what's the investment in that local skill space so fine what do we you know like okay let's look at migrants to close some of that that labor gap and that skills gap that we currently have and and certainly let's let's take that at, at face value we also though need to ensure that we rebuild our university sector, that we rebuild our vocational mm. training sector, our technical uh, training sector, that we uh, ramp up our schools-based VCE or, um, or TAFE-based, our, our schools, schools-based TAFE and schools-based apprenticeship-type programs, you know, like those those sorts of things. Let's use this opportunity while we're, while we're at it to reinvigorate those parts of the economy so that in five years' time we're not still reliant on importing uh, workers from overseas, that we're actually doing the job mm. of, of, of building up our own skills. Fine, you know, like let's let's make sure we do both of those. And I think, you know, for, for all that, the Jobs and Skills Summit dealt with the range of things. If you think about the broad groups mm. that you would want to see represented, I think the main group that we really didn't see strong representation from was that long-term unemployed group, the the, the vulnerable, mm. the the people who uh, have that access, equity, and and flexibility issues and concerns about the workplace as it currently stands. They, they didn't mm. seem to be as represented. And whilst there was discussion about some of it, I, I, I wasn't hearing the, the conversation targeting NDIS participants. You know, like those, those segments of the community didn't really seem to have a voice. But for all that, it was at least good to see the ACTU standing up there with the Business Council of Australia, with the government, with representatives from the Greens and and the other parties and the other parts of politics, you know, the likes of ACOS, uh, the Council of uh, Social Services, you know, like various fairly broad spectrum of stakeholders in society not in the economy, but in society more broadly, mm. looking at this issue and saying, how can we come up with, you know, some sort of fair, equitable and long-term thinking around this issue? Probably the one thing that I, I didn't I didn't see as strongly come through in the outcomes is the specific issue of wages growth. Not quite. There was some talk around collective bargaining and, and multi-sector bargaining and that kind of stuff. We'll see. If that can come through, that's great. But the business community support for those sorts of ideas lasted, 
I don't know. I don't. I, I doubt the signatures were dry on the you know the joint statement coming out of the summit before the Australian Financial Review started tearing those ideas down. But you know, like there you go. That was bound yeah. to happen. But at least there was some sort of common cause and a reasonably adult conversation took place. You know, like over in the sidelines, we had the Liberal Party sort of dribbling their food and, you know, like being upset about stuff. But otherwise, it was it was a reasonably grown-up conversation. Mm. And I do think it's, it, was a, it was a good sort of first step, I think, in reimagining who we want to be as a country, what kind of society we want to be. Uh, you know, again, Danielle Wood mentioned... The extraordinary opportunities we have available to us. One, as she said, once again, Australia is the lucky country. We have all the minerals mm-hmm. needed that are going to be in massively high demand for uh, renewable economies. We have an abundance of wind and solar and hydro and all that sort of stuff. We have these incredible opportunities if we choose to invest in them and invest in the people who can deliver them to That's us. Right. So there's all of that. So as a as a good first step, and I think it was I think it was John Kadelka who had a brilliant cartoon about the Jobs and Skills Summit just being just the first and then there's the tax reform summit and then there's the um I think an economic summit and then there's the climate summit. And <laughs> You know, so yeah, it was, and again, being in the first hundred days of the Albanese government, it was a really good sign. It was, it was far more sort of interest and creativity in who we are as a people than we've seen from government in a really, really long time. Agreed. Ironically, probably since the last Labor government. So that that was great. Yeah. And I think also it, I mean, it's a newsflash for people, but we live in a society. Yeah. We don't live in an economy. Yes. And we need to structure society in a way. That will support the economy and allow the economy to, in turn, feed and support society. Yeah. And we, we should yeah. have an economy that helps drive our standards of living, you know, to yes. support those, to build those, to support our creative endeavours, our cultural endeavours, our sporting endeavours. The, the, the economy should exist so that we can do those other things. Instead, what we seem to be doing or what we have been doing for a little while is sacrificing those things in in service of the economy. You know, like, well, we can't spend money mm. on the arts because economy and we can't spend money on, on cultural institutions because the economy or we can't, you know, like, and that's, that's completely around the wrong way. It really just is. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so, you know, I'd, look, I'd give them a B plus. Because, again, as you said, they didn't touch on all the things that I would have liked them to have touched on, tax cuts, raising job seeker, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Peter Van Onselen was initially sceptical and critical of this, which seems to be his mm-hmm. shtick, but he did acknowledge after the summit, mm-hmm. as, as we've just done, that it was a really good start. But one of the reasons why he was critical of it was he wanted it to be a much broader-based Review of things. So look at taxation reform. Look at structural reform in in in, in society. Yeah. But then it would have needed to have been like a week long summit. And I take think a, take um, a week. Take a week. Yeah. These are big issues. Yeah, look, take, take a, a week. week. Yeah. I mean, I I I think. But I think, you know. Yeah, I'm hoping. Uh, you know, because I work in software development and. My my team is an agile team where we look at continuous improvement and you know, we start off with a minimum viable product and we keep building on top of that. I'm kind of hoping that the Albanese government is going down that path of going, well, we'll start with the Jobs and Skills Summit, get everybody in the room, get them talking, get them cooperating, which is the first time sure. in a long time that they've done yeah. that. 
to have Jenna, you know, Jennifer Westercott and Sally McManus on Insiders at the same time, basically tag teaming David Spears as they go, no, no, we're good. We have agreed on this as he tries to find gotcha moments and get them to argue with each other. It's 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 enormous progress for very, very yeah. early on in a new government. So yeah. I'm hoping to see continuous improvement that, that, and um, that we'll get to some of the big ticket items yeah. that you and I are passionate about. I mean, about. That, that, part's, that part's positive. So far what we're seeing from this government is a darn sight of an improvement over the previous one. No, no argument for me there. Like they're definitely, they're definitely doing better. I do feel concerned that we seem to be continuing some of these, you know, these sort of neoliberal pro-capital ideas, pro-capitalist ideas, just around how we're treating some of our more vulnerable uh, members of society. You know, like Mm. we we don't seem to be tackling this question of how do we ensure that everyone has a right to live a dignified life? You know, just as a basic question, how do we ensure that that happens? How do we ensure that our economy delivers that outcome? And instead, we seem to be arguing that, our, our economy can only support some people to live a dignified life and, mm. and others, you know, we're afraid are going to have to be left out in the cold. And I, and I don't think that's an ambition that we should settle for in this country. I think we can do much better than that. Absolutely. And I, I do feel like the government is falling into old traps and old ways that no longer serve us as a nation, mm-hmm. that at the time would have been hot-button issues prior to the pandemic, but having been through you know, almost three years now of the pandemic and the wrenching changes that, you know, like this new reality that we've sort of found ourselves in, they, they yeah, there do seem to be old paradigms that don't, that aren't relevant. This obsession with debt and deficit, I mean, the coalition racked up a trillion dollars worth of debt, not all of it related to the pandemic, I should point out, quite a lot of it was prior to the yeah. pandemic. But governments across the world just went, you know what, debt is not the giant monster that it used to be prior to the pandemic we are this nation is going to be in debt for decades to come now that trillion dollars is going to take decades to pay down so why are we acting like we need to pay it down in our very first budget why are we tossing the as you said the dignified lives of our most vulnerable onto the sacrificial altar of paying down the debt yeah going back uh to the howard and costello years you know, like during the early stages of the mining boom, Howard and Costello almost made the mistake of paying down our national debt completely. And somebody had to explain to them the role of the bond market and why it was important that there always be some government debt circulating in the economy. You know, like it, it's a necessary part of our of our economy and the way our financial systems mm. work, that there is always some government debt. And Costello is like, we can pay off all the debt. Like, this is all, is, isn't this? No, yeah, it's not. Awesome. No, no. Why, why, <laughs> hang on. Why, why not? Someone explain this to me. And yeah. it's only been, to, you know, like up since then, but, you know, like for a while, yeah. we, we, we were trying to. Yeah. Um, it's not necessary. And no. <laughs> And and also there's this weird short-sightedness that Chalmers and Albanese have going into what is going to be an October budget Mm. is that they are ruling out stuff that will make money in the long term, right? They're ruling out literal investments. They're ruling out changes that they can spend money on that will have, in in some cases, an immediate financial return for the nation. 
because they don't want to be spending any more money than they already and are. Really and then it sense. swings back around to the tax It just doesn't and, make sense. You know. So thank you for that. Another wonderful venting session about the ills that our country faces. Pleasure. Thank Good. you once again. Thank you so much to Steve for his insights and for letting me vent to him about the utterly absurd Stage 3 tax cuts. I've put links in the show notes to Danielle Wood's incredible keynote speech from the Drop Summit, as well as Karen Middleton's articles about the curious coincidence of the Governor-General and Scott Morrison, Rachel Withers' evisceration of the Stage 3 tax cuts, and Rick Morton's piece on mutual obligations, and what amounts to the selling of poor people for profit. I also tracked down the graph from Greg Jericho comparing company profits to wages and an article from Richard Dennis on the real cause of inflation, company profits rather than consumer demand. And a quick walk of shame, the cartoon of the various summits that I referenced in the podcast was by the brilliant Kathy Wilcox and not John Kadelka. And that's also in the show notes. As I noted in the intro to this episode, the Governor-General's charity, which received millions of dollars in seed funding and then a guarantee of funding in perpetuity, has had its funding overturned by the government. Apart from the serious questions of propriety that arose about that arrangement, it seemed entirely sensible to cancel the funding if, as Treasurer Jim Chalmers keeps insisting, we can't afford crucial things like raising the rate of JobSeeker then we certainly can't afford to fund a leadership charity boondoggle for the Governor-General. Uh, there's a link to an article about the defunding of the Future Leaders Program charity in the show notes as well. So lots of reading for you. We covered a lot in this episode, so if you're still listening, thank you so much for sticking with us. And we'll have more episodes for you very soon. Keep the Bastards Honest is brought to you by the Australian Democrats. This episode was edited and produced by me, Alana Mitchell. If you'd like to keep in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and LinkedIn by searching for Australian Democrats and you can see what we stand for, what we value and what our policy positions are at our website at democrats.org.au. Until next time, thanks for listening.